Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. We come to the Bible's secret love chapter. You say love chapter in the Bible and everybody thinks 1 Corinthians 13 and it has the, the soaring prose and poetry and you know, it's read at, at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Very rarely do you come to Leviticus 19. But this is indeed the first and secret love chapter in the Scriptures. And what we learn herein is that love is expressed, or is an expression of holiness. Last week we tried to sum up verses, chapters 18 through 20 in Leviticus. I shared a little bit of my own nostalgia because I'd been watching The Last Dance and I referred you to that Michael Jordan commercial in the early 90s. I'll spare you the singing this time, right? I could dream, right? No. Uh, at the end of that ad, the screen goes black and you get the words, be like Mike, drink Gatorade. And we said the, the point of these chapters, 18, 19, 20, really the second half of the book of Leviticus is be like God, keep his commandments. And we've, we've said it this way in our main idea this morning, is that God's people are to be holy because God is is holy. You can see that right there in verse 2 of chapter 19. And holiness is expressed through love. Holiness looks like love. Love is holiness lived out for the good of others, as we'll see in this chapter. And so we've made our exhortation match up with verse 18, not verse 8, that's a typo. Verse 18, that latter half, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's pray and we'll begin uh, going through this wonderful chapter together this morning. Father, we ask for your presence this morning. We come desiring to draw once more from the well of the Scriptures, words of life. Pray that as we hear your word proclaimed faithfully, that it would be as cool water on our lips. That it would be as food to our empty stomachs. As the psalmist says, we, we open wide our mouths so that you might feed us. Help us to feast upon Christ this morning. Help us to hear and to be changed. Help us to encounter you and to love you more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy. Because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so you can see the idea of this chapter right there in verse 2. The point is, God is telling his people to be holy because he is holy. The reason the people are to be holy is because God is holy. God's people are to be like God. The rest of the chapter, everything that follows, is explaining that statement. 
God is saying, they are to be holy like I am holy, and here is what that looks like. He gives to, to the people the law. But before we get to, to all these different laws and talk about, we need to talk about the connection between uh, law and love. But before we even do that, we need to talk about what holiness is. Throughout our time in Leviticus, we have defined holiness as God's transcendent majesty, his greatness, and his goodness. I always try to remember it by saying uh, God is unique, powerful, and pure. These are attributes of God. This, this is who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. So then we ask, well, what does holiness look like in the lives of God's people? Well, first, it means that, that God has redeemed us or saved us. As Christians, uh, what it means, step one to living a holy life, is actually uh, being made holy in the sense that God separates us to himself. He calls us his children. He saves us by his grace through the work of Christ on the cross. We recognize that we are sinners in need of salvation, that we have violated his law, that indeed we, we have lived unholy lives. And we say, God, I don't want to live an unholy life anymore. I recognize that I was made for you. I was made to worship you, and that's what I want to do now. Through the blood of Christ, my sins are forgiven. I, he, he takes my sin, I take his righteousness and grace, and now I am at peace with you. I've been reconciled, and so I, I've been set apart as, as your child. And then kind of part two of, of what holiness looks like in the life of the believer, be, being saved being set apart as God's people means that we live as his people. Are you with me? I always think of it this way. Uh, royal children have royal manners. And so we have been adopted into the household of the king, and now it's our responsibility to live like the king. Or uh, maybe a different analogy. There is a holiness that God has wrought within us, and that is our, our, where our root is, typically we use this illustration in terms of our faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's the root of our salvation. And then because of that salvation, and because of our holiness, faith, because of what God has done in us, we bear the fruit of righteousness. And the fruit that is born out of being set apart and made holy, made God's holy people, the fruit of that was love. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so God's people are called to live holy lives. And what that looks like is lives that are filled with love. I love Kevin DeYoung's definition here of love. I put it on your insert. Love is holiness lived out for the good of others. We see this connection between love and holiness in uh, verse 18 even, right? We're in the middle of the law. God said, be holy as I am holy. And then he sums the whole thing up at the end of verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus picks it up in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so love is holiness lived out. It's not this sentimental feeling that we might get. 
But love has actual content. And the concrete expression of love for God and love for our neighbors is obedience to God's word. Jesus uh, makes the same connection in Mark 12, which we already read together this morning. The first and most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus. It's Jesus' favorite Bible verse. Quotes it more than any other part of the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's from Leviticus. Can you believe that? Jesus didn't come up with that. I mean, I guess in a sense he did. But, but Moses wrote it and then Jesus quoted it. And Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Love is the concrete expression of holiness. Love is holiness lived out for the good of our neighbors. So if we want to be a loving people, the thing that we will do, well, we'll learn God's law because it tells us how to love him and how to love neighbor. And so let's, let's look at some of these laws in Leviticus chapter 19. Admittedly, we're going to spend more time on the front half of the chapter than the latter half but we're actually going to begin on the latter half where we have what seem to be miscellaneous laws. And so I'm going to read a short section, comment on a few of them, and then we're going to just shift gears and move to the front part of the chapter. Look with me at verse 19. You are to keep my statutes. Do not crossbreed two different kinds of your livestock. Sow your fields with two different kinds of seed or put on a garment made of two kinds of material. If a man has sexual intercourse with a woman who is a slave, designated for another man, but she has not yet been redeemed or given her freedom, there must be punishment. They are not to put to death, not to be put to death because she has not been freed. However, he must bring a ram as his guilt offering to the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest will make atonement on his behalf before the Lord with the ram of the guilt offering. For the sin he has committed, and he will be forgiven for the sin he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, you're to consider the fruit forbidden. It will be forbidden to you for three years. It is not to be eaten. The fourth year, all of its fruit is to be consecrated as a praise offering to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit. In this way, its yield will increase for you. I am the Lord your God. You're not to eat anything with blood in it. You're not to practice divination or witchcraft. You're not to cut off hair at the sides of your head or mar the edges of your beard. You are not to make gashes on your bodies for the dead or put tattoo or painting marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Now we, we read those, that's just a little sampling, and, and we walk away, maybe in our quiet time in the morning, we say, what? I didn't, I don't know that I got a ton out of that, Lord. What, what, what are these laws here for? And then we have that follow-up question. Why, why don't we keep all of these commandments anymore? I'm wearing a polyester shirt and 
mixed fabric and maybe I have a tattoo? What's, what's going on there? Why do we keep some laws and not others? And I think uh, the simplest way to try to explain this is to just simply say that uh, there are many laws of the Old Testament we don't follow anymore because they were fulfilled in Christ and applied to Israel in unique ways. We talked about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11. But the, the easiest way to try to understand this is to look at the law and recognize, well, we can kind of put it in three different categories. There's the moral law that has to do with how we live. There's the, the civil law, how Israel is to live as a nation. And then you have the ceremonial law having to do with ritual states and the sacrificial system. And so the moral laws are kind of woven into the fabric of creation. They're transcultural for all times in all places. And they're always required of God's people. These are laws we see reiterated in the New Testament. Then, on the other hand, we have these civil and ceremonial laws. Laws that apply to Israel in a unique way. They're given to a particular culture at a particular time for a particular purpose. And once Jesus fulfills these aspects of the law, well, they're, they're no longer binding on us in the same way that the moral aspects of the law are. So, uh, for example, the tabernacle and the ritual system in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant were, were meant to point us to the New Covenant. And so Jesus turns out to be the true and greater temple. We don't go to the temple to meet God. We, we come to Jesus. And so to try to go to the temple to meet God wouldn't make sense anymore. It was meant to teach us to come to Jesus. That's where we will meet God. That's where God and man come into peaceful relationship. Sacrifices were made so that there could be atonement for sin. So God and man could be reconciled. But don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus fulfilled that. All the blood of the, the goats and the rams was meant to point to Jesus. A lot of goats and rams couldn't take away sins. Couldn't take away the penalty. Only the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so once Jesus dies, it wouldn't make any sense for us to continue going to a temple and offering sacrifices. We have Jesus. And so the signposts of the sacrificial system are no longer necessary. On the other hand, we still, as God's people, need to be holy as God is holy. So what does this mean when we read about mixed fabric and tattoos and, and trees in the land? Well, there are principles to be learned from these various laws. Now let's, let's actually start, we'll start with uh, verse 27 and 28, where we see, hey, don't mar the edges of your beard or cut your hair in a funky way at the sides or, or get tattoos. And you'll notice an important phrase here, for the dead. And what's going on here is the way that uh, the pagan nations around Israel used to grieve and sometimes worship was by, well, you guessed it, cutting off hair at the sides of their head, marring their beards, and even getting tattoos. You could also translate this word paintings, perhaps, uh, or painting their bodies as part of this ritual. And so uh, we don't have that problem typically in the West here, right? Uh, people do not associate tattoos and uh, particular hairstyles with illicit worship. 
And so uh, this is one of those laws we come to and go, all right, this is not something we need to do to distinguish ourselves as the people of God. Do you want to, as a Christian, make wise decisions? Yes. But are you allowed to have uh, a marred beard or hair cut off at the sides? Yes. Same thing for tattoos. There's wisdom to be considered. But it's not off limits. You can see that the, the purpose underneath of the law is to distinguish the people of God who are holy from the pagan nations around them. And so maybe a good application of this principle would be to think, in what ways is my life distinct from the world? Or maybe a harder question to answer, in what areas of my life do I look too much like people who do not know God? What makes me different? How am I set apart? Uh, the next kind of one that jumped out to me when I was reading through this, I thought, what on earth is going on? Is Starting in verse 20, you have this scenario where a man has slept with a slave girl who was promised to another. And so what you have is a beginnings of a betrothal. And so the slave girl is going to be betrothed to another man, and he's not yet paid the bride price. That's what that bit about her being redeemed yet. He's going to pay the bride price, and then she's going to be his in betrothal. Betrothal was a little bit more serious back then, so that if you committed adultery during the betrothal period, it was as if you were married. And so all the normal um, punishments would apply. But, But this is a scenario where they're not yet betrothed, even though she's promised to another, and then she sleeps with another man. And so the punishment can't be death, but there does need to be punishment here, God says. And so what has to happen is the man will bring a ram as a guilt offering to the Lord to make compensation for his sin. And we learn from elsewhere in the law, it would be expected that he would marry the girl as part of the law of fornication, which shows up for us in in Deuteronomy. And what we see in this law particularly, and we see throughout the scriptures, is God's concern for the weak and for those who are in positions that are not exactly ripe with power. God loves women. He doesn't want anyone to be shamed. He doesn't want anyone to be exploited and taken advantage of. So this this law is here for the protection of the the young slave girl. Think again, principle applied for us, that we want to think of ways that we can serve and love the weak and protect those who cannot protect themselves. Another interesting law here is with the trees. right? If you, if you plant your fruit trees, you can't eat off of it, and then uh, after a few years, uh, you get to bring it to the Lord as an offering, and then finally, you get to eat it. And all that's going on here is the people would be doing this as an act of obedience. It would express their dependence on God. It would be recognizing Him as their King and their protector. And then verse 19 You're not to sow two different kinds of seed. Uh, This is basically, you just keep these things distinct. Keep them separate from one another as they were created. And it's meant to point us to the distinction between Israel and the rest of the nations. The, The fabric part, sometimes people will say, yes, the fabric shouldn't be mixed either because it shows the distinction between Israel and the nations. But I think there's more to it than that. Notice 
it's not that they can't make fabric of two different kinds, but that they can't wear it. And it's interesting that there are people within Israel who wore mixed fabric. They were the priests. And so what's actually going on here is as an Israelite, there would be a temptation to dress in what would be considered fancier garments, mixed fabric, like the priests. I know, it's weird. Nobody wants to dress like me. Uh, but but they, they might be tempted towards this. And what God is saying is, no, we want to make clear it's not like this anymore, praise God. But we want to make clear there's a difference between the, the priests and the common people. There's a difference in ritual state. Because the, the priest is accomplishing something. And, and so this is what the, how this would work out practically. As an Israelite, in your day-to-day life, you would be forced to think about God all the time. And so you can imagine you're going to get dressed in the morning, you know, 100% cotton today. All right, I guess, you know. No, I've got this polyester shirt in my, you know, I got it as a gift, but I can't wear it, but it's there. And every day you'd go to your closet, you would think about, well, two things. I have been set apart as one of God's children by his grace and mercy. And I only come to him, not on my own, but through a mediator. The mediator wears the mixed fabric, and this is a reminder to me of my need for that mediator. I mean, if we did this in our own lives, had followed all the, these laws, you know, mixed fabric and stuff, I think it would actually do us some good. We, we would start to understand a little bit that holiness is comprehensive, that it's to permeate each and every area of our lives. I think it's a good thing to, to do things that cause us to think of God more. And that's what these, these laws are doing. They're causing Israel to constantly have their minds drawn back to God, to who God is and who they are. I think it would do us all good to meditate more and more on God saved me. I am a sinner. I rebelled against him. I deserve death. And yet God in his kindness provided me with a mediator, perfect high priest, his own son, to die in my place and take my punishment so that I might know him as father rather than as judge. That's that's good news to meditate on. A non-Christian Let me encourage you to think about this. You will either know God as judge or as father. The only way to know him as father is by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. Repenting, being baptized, belonging to a church, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is inviting you to put your life in his hands. His his arms are wide open and he has pockets that are infinitely deep with mercy. He forgives. That's why we Christians are here this morning to praise our God who has lavished upon us love that we do not deserve. To give honor to our God who has saved us, not because we're really good, but because He is good. 
because he is loving. What a wonderful God we serve. These laws are meant to show us that he is concerned with each and every area of our lives. Holiness is it's comprehensive. And we see that holiness starts in the home. Do you notice that right after uh, the second verse, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, then we run right into verse 3. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. You're to keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. If you went through and underlined the phrase, I am the Lord your God, through this chapter like I did, you will have a whole lot of ink in your Bible. It shows up 16 times and kind of punctuates thought and reminds that all of these laws, all of these rules are rooted in the character and person of God. And the character and person of God is learned initially in its infancy in the home. That's the expectation, is that the people of God would be training their children up in the way of the Lord. They're to teach their children these things. And to teach them to keep the Sabbath and to not turn to idols. A real simple application for us as children first is to honor our parents. And all of y'all, you might not think of yourself this way, all of us are children. Yeah, kind of mind-blowing. We, we all had parents. And we are in our youth to listen to them, heed their instruction. You hear that, Owen? You're supposed to listen to me. Heed their instruction, and in our, I'm not mad at you, buddy. I was just talking to you. It's okay. You're doing good. And in our maturity, when we're adults, we're to care for them in their old age. Honor our parents. Now, as, as parents or grandparents, you need to ask yourself this question. How am I teaching my children or my grandchildren to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Especially if you're parents, this has a lot to do with how you organize your home and how you organize your life. And I'll just use the example here. They were to honor the Sabbath day. It made them distinct. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday and we have kind of have this Christian Sabbath now on the Lord's Day where we celebrate God and, and worship Jesus Christ. Is that a prominent feature in your home? Are our Sunday mornings more of a hassle than they are happy and holy? Are they a priority? Or do you allow other things to vie for the space God has called you to worship in? Do other things push Sunday morning worship to the periphery. Your priorities will demonstrate what you worship. People of God honor their parents. They're to, to keep his Sabbath. In our case, to worship together on the Lord's Day. And they are to forsake idols. We're, we're, if you think about an idol, like it's what you count on. So if, if during the, um, the pandemic you go, you know what, I've got plenty of money in the bank, so 
I'm okay. Well, money is, is an idol. Or if you go, uh, I'm not super concerned about whatever is going on in the world. I've got a really strong family. We'll get through this. Well, family is an idol. An idol is anything that you count on more than or instead of God. God is saying, count on me. Look to me for your hope. Not false gods. This is what it means to be holy. This is what it means to be loving. This is how you love the Lord your God, by obeying His commandments. Scene shifts a little bit in verse 5, which 5 through 8 people go, we don't know why this is here. (laughs) It's just it seems to be a random few verses about the fellowship offering, right? But let me tell you, I think what's happening is we're expanding from the home and into the community in terms of our concern and how to express our love for God and for one another. Let me read it to you. When you offer a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord, sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It is to be eaten on the day you sacrifice it, or on the next day. But what remains on the third day must be burned. If any is eaten on the third day, it is repulsive. It will not be accepted. Anyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. And if you've been with us throughout Leviticus, you remember this came up in chapter 7 and then in chapter 3 also before that. And so you are able to say, you know what, look, we've heard this instruction a bunch of times and in detail, but maybe this is just the you know, four dummies version, <laughs> right? Just real quick, that's why it's here. But I think something else is going on based on context. If we look at verses 9 and 10, we'll see that God is very concerned with the poor there. And I think that there's, that's the same concern in this verse, these verses. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, the fellowship offering, when you offered it, it would be a lot of food, and you would have to eat it very quickly. You offer a whole cow, there's going to be a lot to go around. And so what you did was you would have uh, a celebration, you would invite your friends and your family over, and I think what, what we should learn here, deduce here, is that it might be a good idea to invite the poor, to share with them this fellowship offering. One of the qualities of God's people is that they are generous. They've received God's generous grace, and so now they live generously. We see that quality explicated further in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you're not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. I I love this command. It's wonderful. It says, you have all these resources. You have this, this big field, but here's the command. Don't harvest all of it. Leave some of it unharvested. There's actually more to this, actually, later on in Deuteronomy. We, we recognize that they're to leave things they drop on the ground, extra stalks and sheaves, for the poor as well. And what God is doing is he's saying, that part of your field is going to be the way that you help support the poor. They can come in and they can harvest that for themselves. So just, just leave produce out. And it's like there's a, a sign next to everybody's field in Israel, according to this law. Free produce, you know, and then in parentheses. You just got to pick it. 
And people come out and they could gather. This is what we, we see in the book of Ruth most famously, right? Ruth is destitute. She moves back to Israel with her mother and she ends up in Boaz's field and, and she is just harvesting the wheat like she's allowed to. God's made provision for her. And Boaz goes above and beyond in generosity because he is a, a man, as the text describes him, a worthy man, a noble character. He's, he's being generous. Friends, generosity is still enjoined upon God's people. James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he's saying is you need to care about these people. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself You are doing well. Part of how we love our neighbors as ourselves is when we look at the poor, we look at somebody in need, we go, how can I meet that need? And it's really, really hard to be generous if you don't plan for it. Generosity is the skill of learning to live below one's means. Generosity is the skill of learning to live below your means. The idea here, I think, one of the principles we can draw, is that in the same way they planned to leave part of their fields, their literal fields, unharvested so that they could support the poor, we ought to plan our lives so that parts of our metaphorical field can be used to support the poor and the disadvantaged. And so what I'm saying is that you should strive to build margin into your life so that you can bless others. Maybe a way that this looks like is uh, you take a, a certain amount of money every month or every six months, whatever it is. I think every month works better for my purposes here. So that's what we're going to say. Every month you, you take, you know, maybe it's just 10 bucks, maybe it's 50 bucks, I don't know, and you, you put it somewhere in, uh, in like a holy slush fund right? And you've just got this set on the side and you are going to use it to bless somebody. And then on the first of every month, you start looking around, you know, prowling like a lion. All right, who's it going to be? Who has a need? Who can I surprise with this money that I've gathered? Do you know anybody in the community that has a need? I want to help them. You know, and you, you take that money and you find a need and then you just bless somebody. This is, this is holy living. Let me tell you, it's fun. It's fun. You will be blessed if you commit to building margins in your life to serve others. And maybe it's not money. Maybe you, can't, you just can't afford something like that. But, but think about your time and your other resources. Uh, some of our members have been going down to the, the food pantry to serve there. What a great idea. So be building margin into your life, so stewarding your time so that you're actually using some of your resources to serve other people. Use your homes. Maybe you have extra bedrooms. Leave them open in case somebody needs a place to stay. There are things that you can do to be creative with this. But but as Christians, we are to be a generous people. We want to think about how to be generous as the Lord our God has been generous. Next thing we see is that God's people are to be honest. Verse 11, Do not steal, Do not act deceptively or lie to one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, 
profaning the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You'll also notice, and you can do this later for homework if you want, the Ten Commandments are littered throughout the section. So you get a pen and paper out and just try to figure out where they all are. Don't steal, be honest. And that same thing comes up in verse 35. Do not be unfair in measurements of length, weight, or volume. You are to have honest balances, honest weights, an honest dry measure, and an honest liquid measure. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. A lady learned one afternoon on short notice that some of her friends were going to be coming over to her house. And so she made to the market and the meat department to get a roast. And so she asked the butcher, hey, can I have a roast? And the butcher went back into the freezer. He had only one roast left. He didn't tell her that. So he pulls it out. He comes out. He weighs it. And the lady, she looks at it. She says, you know what? I'm going to need a, a bigger one. And so uh, what, what the butcher does is he, he takes the roast. He goes back into the, the, the freezer area and he pretends to fumble around for a little bit. And he comes back with the same roast. And this time, he puts it on, on the little, it's a scale, that's what it's called. He puts it on the scale and he leans on it a little bit harder. Makes it look a little heavier, right? The woman's very satisfied. She says, I'll take both of them. Dishonesty is not becoming of the people of God. And it is almost always found out. We're not to take advantage of others, lying, deceiving them. We're not to, to try to make our own words seem more legitimate by swearing to God. To do so would be to profane his name. God wants his people to be honest. And he wants them to act justly. Look at verse 13. Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But you are to fear the Lord your God. Exploitation of the weak is called oppression and robbery. To be clear, oppression is not an employer making more money than an employee. It's, you know, it's not an income disparity between Jeff Bezos and the rest of us. You're not, you're not oppressed if you don't make as much money as Amazon's CEO. Oppression is refusing to give what is owed. Oppression is not honoring your word or contract. The, the broader principle here is don't take advantage of the weak. And we have the example given to us in verse 13. Got uh, an employer, he's hired an employee to work through the day, and the expectation would be at the end of the day, the worker gets his wages. And that, in this culture, a lot of people were just simply day workers. They lived hand to mouth. So if you held back their wages, it was unjust, and it caused them a whole lot of problems. God says, don't do that. Don't exploit the weak. You are to care for them. You're to act justly. And then we have this, this note in verse 14, which helps us understand the principle as a whole. It's a second example. It says, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in the way of the blind. So you get the idea here. If you curse a deaf person, they're not going to hear you or seek any recourse. 
If you stick your foot out and trip a blind person, well, they're going to trip, but they're not going to seek any recourse or justice. They don't know. But look at the look here. The Lord says, but you are to fear your God. I am the Lord. He says, they might not be able to seek recourse. The weak might not be able to stand up to the strong now, but I know and I will bring justice. Fear the Lord your God. As Christians, we want to be those who seek to act justly as we reflect the character and goodness of our God. And we want to act justly not only in business relationships, as this is described here, but in interpersonal relationships. And even if we were ever called uh, to serve in a court, we would want to act rightly in court. Look at verse 15. Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. James concurs with this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, If you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What, what, what we are being called to here is to judge impartially, right? What's that? Justice is blind. Or we're, we're just going to take cases on their merits and judge them by the facts. We're not going to favor the rich man because he might be able to do us favors down the road. And we're not going to favor the poor man because we really want to stick it to the rich. It'd be both temptations. God is saying, judge fairly. Judge rightly. That's especially relevant here because in their communities, uh, these courts were more personal, right? Part of their villages. Everybody knows everybody. But the call on us is the same, to make right judgments, to not show favoritism. And you see the this, this second part, don't slander and don't um, put your, life, your neighbor's life in danger. What, what that has to do with is witnesses were really important in court cases. And so if you got a witness or two that lied, justice would most almost certainly be miscarried. Well, we see a good example of that in um, Naboth's vineyard. Do you all remember that story? 1 Kings 21, it's one you can read this afternoon. But Naboth has this really sweet vineyard. And Ahab, it's the king at the time, I think, if I remember correctly, he wants this vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth and he, he says, hey, let me buy this vineyard. It's awesome. I'll pay you whatever you want for it. And Naboth says, I'm not selling. And so Ahab does what, what I might do. He goes home and he cries about it and complains to his wife. I think she's his wife, maybe mistress. I don't know. He, comes, he complains to his girl. Oh, I can't get this vineyard. I wanted this vineyard. And what she does is she says, well, let me take care of this for you. And so she pays what the Bible calls our two worthless men to lie about Naboth. And what happens is Naboth is stoned to death. So then Ahab goes and claims his vineyard. It's unjust. These laws are meant to protect people 
from that kind of injustice. We are to be the kind of citizens who strive to make sure that liberty and justice are secured for all. We're the kind of people that judge rightly and act justly. We also see here, as we get ready to transition, we're to be the kind of people who solve our disputes outside of the court of law, if at all possible. Look with me at verse 17. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he says, don't, when you have a problem with somebody, don't just sit there and cultivate bitterness, go and correct the issue with them. Talk about it. That way you will not end up sinning yourself. There are two ways you could end up sinning by keeping this to yourself. You allow them to continue in sin by not addressing it. And you get really angry at them and bitter. And you sin in your anger and bitterness because you don't go to them. Go and try to reconcile with your brother. Jesus concurs in Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens, you have won your brother. It is essential to the health of any church that we are a people who can have reasonable and open conversations so that we're not all carrying around resentment. We want to be the kind of people who are willing to correct one another and to be corrected. Like, it just makes sense. If you are walking around, have you ever had this experience? You walk around all day and then you get home and you look in the mirror and you have just got a giant piece of food in your teeth. It's embarrassing. And the first thing you say to yourself is, why didn't anybody tell me? You just walked around all day like it was normal and that was cool. Why didn't somebody alert me to the fact that I had you know, spinach in my teeth? You want told. How much more so with sin? If I am in sin, or you are in sin, we should want someone to tell us so that we can repent and remove it from our lives. Wisdom invites correction. God calls us to correct one another and to invite correction, and to forgive. See that part of Matthew 18, you have won your brother if he listens to you. The idea here is, don't go to court, but you can solve this by talking about it reasonably with one another. There can be repentance and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the hardest part about following Jesus, I think. Not not receiving it for ourselves, that's usually pretty easy, but extending it to other people. And I think part of the reason it's so hard for us to forgive other people, at least, is we have this wrong idea that we have to have certain feelings when we forgive someone. And that's just not true. I love what uh, Corey Tenbaum says in her book, The Hiding Place. Forgiveness 
is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. What she's saying is, you can forgive even if it doesn't give you all the warm fuzzies. It is an act of the will. And that's what we're called to, to be a forgiving people. And we might ask, well, how many times do I need to forgive my brother or my neighbor? And that's the exact question Peter asked Jesus. And Jesus responds in Matthew 18, 22, I tell you, not as many as seven times, because Peter suggested seven, which was actually really generous, not as many as seven times, but 70 times seven. What he means is believers are to forgive in perpetuity, without fail, over and over and over again. To be a loving and forgiving people. This is how we express the holiness of God. This is how we are holy as God is holy. Love is holiness lived out for the good of others. Do not take revenge or bear grudge against members of your own community, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so initially, if we wanted to kind of narrow this, we might look at that and go, well, members of our community. And so my neighbor is just a member of my community. But Leviticus won't let us do that. Look at verse 33. When an alien resides with you in your land, immigrant, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It says this, not, not only is your neighbor just the person in your community, it are, it's these people that you're coming into contact with. Immigrants and strangers. Love them as yourself. We have a similar interaction with, with Jesus. And what's maybe the most famous parable in Luke 10 I'll read part of it to you. We have a lawyer, a theologian, standing up to ask questions. And we read in verse 29. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? They've just had this discussion. Jesus, he says, yeah, the commands are to love my neighbor as myself. I want to justify myself. How do I do that? How do, how do I inherit eternal life? Which is, the question he asks initially, and that's just a messed up question. Because when you inherit something, you know, you've got to kind of belong to a family for that, to receive it. You can't do anything to inherit what's not yours. But this man is seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to try to take hold of eternal life. And so Jesus changes the conversation with this parable. At the end of the day, Jesus' correction says, your question is not, well, who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? And Jesus took up the question and said, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road when he saw him and passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, somebody nobody liked, on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. 
He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, medical treatment at the time. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. If you stayed at the inn too long and didn't pay, you could be sold into slavery. Samaritan saying, No, put it on my account. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer theologian answers, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus tells him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. There are a few things that I think we need to learn from this parable very quickly. One is, in context, we should absolutely see that we will fail at being good neighbors. That we cannot justify ourselves. Second, is that in this context, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his way to the cross to die for sin. And we see when we look at this parable from the perspective of the cross that indeed Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the ultimate example of love, of living out holiness for the good of others. He's the king who stoops down to save a rebellious servant. Jesus comes to us when we are dead in our sins on the side of the road. And he raises us up to life by offering himself as a substitute for our sins. He he heals our wounds by being wounded himself. He brings us safely into the arms of the Father by Himself being forsaken. Indeed, Jesus pays all of our debt so that we never have to return to the slavery of sin. He has freed us, loved us, not because we deserved it, but because he is good. Thirdly, we are to, by God's grace, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves, to look for ways to love and to serve them. So friends, let's resolve by God's grace, to be holy as He is holy, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's love Jesus deeply and do our best to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is truth. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us to walk in it. Help us to show our deep love for Jesus by obeying your commands. Let us 
express the truth that you have set us apart as your holy people by loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.